The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com podcasts. Cases challenging the Trump administration's addition of a citizenship question to the 2020 census are moving forward in federal courts in New York, California, and Maryland. Speaking to the House Oversight Committee in May, Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton voiced her concerns about the question. You do not believe, in your expert opinion, that asking this question, even after Mr. Levitt's testimony, will have any effect upon the willingness of people to answer questions. You think that there is no danger here. Joining me is Kimberly Strawbridge-Robinson, Supreme Court reporter for Bloomberg Law. Kimberly, why does the Trump administration say this question should be added, and what is the challenger's response? Well, the citizenship question is a question that has appeared on the census before, uh, several decades ago, and it has since been taken off. Now, the way that this citizenship question got added on this time is somewhat of a mystery. The Department of Commerce, which is responsible for the census, says that the Department of Justice actually reached out to it uh, to ask that the citizenship question be added to the 2020 census in order to give the Department of Justice more information to successfully enforce the Voting Rights Act, which is a landmark act uh, protecting minority voting rights. Now, uh, this question is currently asked on a different survey sent out by the Census Bureau, but the Department of uh, uh, Justice says that it needs uh, even more responses uh, and that it should go on the census, which is sent to every American household. Now, during these cases, there's been some evidence that it was actually the Commerce Department that reached out to the DOJ, and one of the judges in these cases out of New York said that the citizenship question was really a problem in search of, or a solution in search of a problem. And you know, opponents of the citizenship question really point to that latter timeline as evidence that, you know, the VRA excuse is really just a pretext for the Trump administration uh, to be able to uh, depress response rates among immigrant communities. And they stress that it's not only uh, supposed to depress response rates from individuals who entered the country illegally, but even U.S. citizens uh, who may live in households uh, with individuals who entered the country illegally. Did any of the courts consider any of President Trump's statements regarding immigration? Well, they did tangentially. So at this point of the litigation, the question is whether or not the Trump administration uh, can even be challenged on these kinds of decisions or whether or not it's uh, completely something that's left up to the political branches uh, separate from the judiciary. And so in reviewing whether or not uh, these claims can be made and whether or not the plaintiffs have brought forth enough evidence to go forward, the courts have focused on whether or not response rates will actually be depressed 
suppressed. And at least one of the federal judges noted that the current political climate certainly suggests uh, that individuals may be afraid, uh, given some of then-candidate Trump's statements and the Trump administration's immigration positions. So they're separate cases. Is there any similarity in the legal arguments of the challengers? Are they basing it on the same considerations? Well, there are really there are a few different uh, legal challenges that are brought in these cases. All of them include uh, statutory claims um, that relate to a statute that effectively cabins the way that the executive can change federal law. But they also make um, some larger constitutional claims uh, that vary slightly. But all of the cases, all six of them, are all seeking the same result, and that is an order prohibiting the Trump administration from putting this question on the 2020 census. So now timing is essential here because the 2020 census questions need to be finalized before the spring of 2019. Will the courts be able to resolve these issues by then? Well, the courts do know that they're operating on quite a tight timeline, and that's because even though the census questions won't go out until 2020, of course, they have to be published and they have to be printed and then actually sent out. Um, So there is somewhat of a moving um, target for these cases. Right now, they're on track to be to go at least one of them to go to trial in January. And that's really kind of the limit of where uh, the opponents who are challenging this question think that the trial courts uh, need to finish up in order to allow for enough time for appeals to follow. And time for appeals, this could be appealed to the Supreme Court? Well, that's right. And these are the kinds of cases, uh, kinds of really consequential cases that the justices do like to um, intervene on, especially if the courts in these cases come to different results. So, Kimberly, what kind of evidence is likely to be presented at trial? Well, they're likely going to be looking at whether or not the citizenship question will, in fact, lower response rates. And I think one of the key uh, pieces of information for the opponents is actually going to be the Commerce Department's own uh, findings that citizenship question would depress uh, response rates dramatically. And another you know, piece that they're going to be looking at is really the purpose of adding the citizenship question. Is the VRA defense uh, something uh, that is true, or is it just a pretext uh, to harm President Trump's political opponents? So then what will the government present if if their own experts are going to testify on behalf of the uh, challengers? Well, the experts, likely the government will present experts um, that support their timeline, that it was the Commerce or the Department of Justice that reached out to the Commerce Department and that there's a good reason for doing this, and that is, of course, enforcing voting rights. Um, and they'll be pressing on the increased information that they'll get by adding this information to the 2020 census. And uh, will, will Wilbur Ross take the stand, you think? Well, this is really, uh, it's brought against uh, the secretary in his um, capacity as, uh, you know, an official, uh, but likely he has had very little to do with the actual question. It's more likely we'll see individuals from the Census Bureau who will be um, presented in these cases. They sound really like fascinating cases, more fascinating than I initially thought. Thanks so much, Kimberly. That's Kimberly Strawbridge Robinson, Supreme Court reporter for Bloomberg Law. So remember that the census is tied to not only how many representatives there are in the House of Representatives for states, but also allocates more than $675 billion in federal funding. 
President Trump has shown support for former campaign chairman Paul Manafort, who was found guilty on eight counts of bank and tax fraud last week, in tweets and speaking with Fox News last week. I have great respect for what he's done in terms of what he's gone through. Some of the charges mm-hmm. they threw against him, every consultant, every lobbyist in Washington probably does. But despite the president's support, Manafort's legal woes seem to be snowballing. He faces a second trial starting in Washington, D.C. next month on money laundering and obstruction of justice charges and a potential third trial in Virginia. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner at McCarter in English. So, Bob, Manafort was convicted last week on eight counts of tax and bank fraud, but the jury hung on 10 other counts. The prosecutor's are going to tell us today, are going to tell Manafort, more importantly, whether they're going to pursue a retrial. What are the chances they'll retry him? Well, I think typically they would not because the charges that he was convicted of already carry substantial jail time, and so it might not be worth the government's time to invest its resources in the retrial. But in this case, I could see prosecutors at this point telling Judge Ellis that they do intend at this point in time to retry those 10 charges. We do know from speaking with jurors after the trial that there was a lone holdout, so it was uh, only, uh, they were only one vote away from getting convictions on those. 10 other counts. And as a practical matter, what prosecutors can do is allow the case in Washington, D.C. to proceed, see how that goes, and then ultimately they can always make the decision not to go forward with this third trial if they decide that that's the right thing for them to do. Manafort's lawyers reportedly were talking about a plea deal with prosecutors while the Virginia jury was deliberating. That stalled over issues reportedly, according to the Wall Street Journal, raised by the prosecutors. So it's obvious why he would want a plea deal, but why would Mueller be inclined to give him a deal when he has him, you know, might say, over a barrel? Well, there'd be two reasons. One is simply to gain the certainty of a conviction in D.C., although that seems like a strong case, and the jury pool in the District of Columbia is likely to be more favorable to the government. The jury pool in the Eastern District of Virginia will typically draw on more Republican voters, and we know that there were a number of supporters of the president that were on that jury panel. So I think prosecutors are probably feeling pretty good about their chances of a conviction in Washington, D.C., but if they can get that conviction by way of a plea they still may be interested in doing it. And then, of course, there's always the possibility of Manafort agreeing to cooperate, which is really what prosecutors are looking for here. And the more pressure that they apply to him, the more likely that becomes as a possibility. So cooperation would be an essential part of any plea? Uh, It could. I think they would be willing to take a plea without cooperation, but they're much likely, uh, much more likely to give him less favorable terms if all he's looking for is a straight-up plea without cooperation. With cooperation, he's going to get essentially the same terms, but then, of course, there's the opportunity for the judge to move to reduce that sentence based upon his cooperation. So Mr. Manafort has a lot on his plate right now, a lot of difficult decisions to be made. But if he is going to strike a deal and he is is going to consider cooperating, now is really the time to do it. He's really got to probably make that decision before this Washington trial gets underway. So, Bob, if you were his defense attorney, how would you tell him to factor in the possibility of a pardon from Trump? 
Well, that's a very interesting question, and it's very difficult to come up with some kind of number and give your client some kind of comfort as to whether or not that's going to happen. The president has obviously made a number of statements about that possibility. He has reportedly discussed that internally with his lawyers, um, but whether or not the political blowback will be so substantial that he ultimately decides not to do that, we'll just have to wait and see. And I think one thing the president is doing also is perhaps waiting to see where Manafort goes with this. If Manafort continues to stand tall, uh, as the president put it, and continue to fight these charges and not cut a deal, uh, he may wait and let, let this play out. Let's see if he gets convicted in Washington if this trial goes forward, and then make a decision at some point in the future. Let's talk about that upcoming trial in D.C. Charges of conspiring to launder money, obstruct justice, and acting as an unregistered foreign lobbyist. But a very different judge, Judge Amy Berman Jackson, how is she different from Judge Ellis, who had a, there was a lot of criticism of Judge Ellis for his comments during the trial and his rulings against the prosecution? Well, I think what we can say, June, is that Judge Ellis, through his comments during the course of the trial, and in particular during the course of motions that were argued in the case before the trial got underway, showed some sympathy towards Mr. Manafort and some antipathy to the government's case and to the government's uh, handling of the trial as the case proceeded. So far, uh, Judge Berman Jackson has shown no particular sympathy towards Mr. Manafort. She's known as a very straightforward, play it down the middle kind of judge. She's not going to tolerate any nonsense. Uh, and I think she uh, is going to probably inject herself and her personality and her personal style into the trial uh, less than we saw with Judge Ellis in the case in the Eastern District of Virginia. She's also the judge who sent Manafort to jail pre-trial. During, so at this point, they're talking about questions the jury can be asked, and the prosecutors want to be able to ask or to have the judge ask about whether jurors voted in the 2016 election, whether they had any opinions of Trump or others associated with his campaign for president. Is the judge likely to allow those specific kinds of questions? Well, it's interesting. They have the same type of back and forth in advance of the trial before Judge Ellis. And in that case, Judge Ellis made clear that he was not going to go down that road. He was not going to inject politics into this trial, even through a backdoor questioning of jurors. And I would suspect that Judge Berman Jackson will agree with that strategy. Uh, the problem with getting into questions about whether people voted and whether they have any particular feelings about the president and about his associates is that it injects a level of politics into the trial that I think the judge is going to try to avoid. So I think they're going to say, Listen, it'd be interesting for both sides, the defense and the prosecution, to know the answers to these questions, but I think it's best if nobody knows. And we will find out after the trial, as we did in the Virginia case. Thanks so much, Bob. That's Robert Mintz. He's a partner at McCarter and English. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.